Uh, good morning, guys. Uh, good to see you all. I believe this is the first time in a long time where all of our spring breaks from all the schools have hit on the very same week. So if you're missing some of our younger guys, they're probably uh, sitting on the beach right now. And if uh, some of you are listening to this on the way home uh, on our website, you be careful and get the, get the wife and kids home safely. Be careful. Hey, this morning we are looking at, at Acts chapter 18, and you'll remember that the Apostle Paul in our last chapter, uh, uh, last week we studied Acts 17 with Paul in Athens, and uh, the great intellectual center of the world. And he led at least two people to Christ, were given their, their names, Dionysius and Damaris. We're thankful for that, but by and large it had to be a, a difficult uh, uh, a difficult crusade for him uh, because largely he was sort of laughed uh, out of the Areopagus. We don't know that the Areopagus forbade him from preaching anymore in Athens. They could have. They had the power to do that. It seems likely that they probably did. Uh, Athens was a town of about 45,000 people. Some say less. Uh, we're not real sure, somewhere between, get this, 10,000 and 45,000. That's a pretty big range. But it wasn't one of the largest cities. It was one of the most prestigious cities in the Roman Empire, but it wasn't the largest. Ephesus was much larger, uh, and we'll get to Ephesus a little later. Uh, Corinth was much larger. Paul leaves Athens after what had to be some really stiff philosophical opposition. And remember, he's, he's by himself because uh, Timothy and Titus have, have not come down from Achaia. So Paul leaves by himself, travels about uh, 45 or 50 miles west, goes across the isthmus from the mainland of Greece to the Peloponnesian uh, area where Corinth is. And Corinth is right on the isthmus. Uh, it was a very large city, uh, about 450,000 residents, which in that day would have made it one of, one of the world's largest cities. Of those 450,000 people, 300,000 of them, uh, we believe, were slaves. Of course, slavery was somewhat different in the first century as, uh, than we would know it in the 18th and 19th centuries here in the States. Uh, for one thing, it wasn't ethnic. For another, there were opportunities for people to get out of slavery. Uh, the kind of slavery that was here in, in the States was one of the most cruel forms of slavery uh, that the world knows. Uh, but nonetheless, people were slaves, and it was not the ideal state at all. And Paul said to them in his letter to, the Cor to Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 7, you remember he said that uh, if you can't get your freedom from slavery, then be the best slave you can be, and remember that Christ is your master. If you get your opportunity to be free, to be then be free, for sure. We don't like pain and agony. But if we have it, we'll make the best of it by God's grace. So Corinth was a huge commercial center. It was uh, one thing that made it profitable was that it was right on the isthmus so that if you, if you want to travel from uh, the west to the east on the sea, instead of going 200 miles, a dangerous trip around Peloponnesia, you could go right across the isthmus if you had a ship that would fit the trade there because they, they would take you in on one harbor, put the ship up on rollers, 
and roll it for a mile and a half back into the other sea and save you a 200-mile trip. So it was a very profitable business. There were a lot of sailors there in Corinth. There were also a lot of retired military in Corinth. So Paul is going from what we might call Boston to New York. Uh, it's kind of New York and Las Vegas combined in one. It's, it's a pretty hairy city. In Corinth, if you go there, uh, you'll uh, see that it, it was spread out along a large area, uh, uh, you know, some way up off the coast. And then in the background is a 2,000-foot um, mountain. It, it, it just kind of goes up out of nowhere, and then it's flat on the top. That's called the Acre Corinth. On top of the Acre Corinth was a major temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, or in Roman gods, that would be Venus. And on top of this mountain, uh, Venus or Aphrodite was worshipped, and there were about a 1,000 female slaves that kept the temple of Aphrodite. They were also prostitutes, as you know. Uh, the temple prostitutes were common in that day, but especially with the temple of Aphrodite, uh, there were many temple prostitutes. From the top of Acre Corinth, you, you can look out and see the harbor. So when new ships would come in, the prostitutes would come down the Acre Corinth. Once again, it's 2,000 feet, so it's no easy journey, but they, well, they, they would come down and they would just go throughout the city uh, offering their wares when they saw new sailors coming in. When you enter Corinth, there's a, uh, there's a, uh, the main byway that comes into Corinth, and it's still there. And if you are on that main byway, you can look up to your right as you enter the, the city which, of course, now is in ruins, but a lot of them have been excavated. You can look up on another hill right in the middle of the city of Corinth, and there is the temple of uh, Apollos. And uh, it's daunting. It's a beautiful old temple. Uh, so the, the moment you come into Corinth, you're confronted with the chief god there uh, in the temple. Everything about Corinth was, was difficult for the gospel. Uh, we'll see more about that in a few moments. But it didn't have the uh, intellectual fame of Athens, but it had just as much intellectual pride as Athens did. And in addition to that, it had something Athens didn't have, and that was a progressive, commercial, very wealthy, and very uh, wicked uh, sort of lifestyle. So uh, recently, as, you, as I've told you, I, I was on a, a trip uh, w uh, that took you on the footsteps of the Apostle Paul in Rome and Ephesus and uh, some, uh, uh, some of the places around in, in Greece, Athens, and then Corinth. And I would say the most moving place of all of them for me was in Corinth because uh, just being aware that Paul had just left Athens after uh, what had to be a fairly disappointing and difficult tour, he takes that walk uh, for many miles to Corinth all by himself and comes into this city that's just full of intellectual uh, opposition and full of ethical problems, and there he holds up the gospel. It just amazes me. Uh, I want us to look at this text and learn from it because the apostle, you know, says over and over again, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so when we look at the apostle's life and his commitments, what we're seeing is... Uh, not a perfect example, but we, we do see a good example of 
what it means to be a follower of Christ. Let's take note as we read in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, See to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him a Priscilla and Aquila at Centria. He had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Well, we have a couple of main things we want to learn from this text this morning that are really important for us in our day, uh, living in our little Corinth right here in Memphis, Tennessee. And the first one is in verses 1 through 8, and that is, we mustn't let setbacks become roadblocks. Don't let setbacks become roadblocks. Now, why do I say that? Because Paul had every reason to be massively disappointed uh, after his trip to Athens. He was the scum of the earth. He was the idiot of the world in the view of the great philosophical schools. Paul had made his trip to Oxford, made his trip to Cambridge, and he was laughed right off the campuses. And he was told he he was a fool. And he had what seems to be very limited success. And we don't hear about the church yet being planted in Athens. Now we know eventually it was. And uh, Dionysius seems to be the bishop of Athens eventually. But Paul didn't leave with a church planted there. So he got, he got beat up in a lot of ways. Now in, in Asia, he had been beat up physically. 
in Macedonia, he had been beat up physically. Here he seems to be beat up verbally. So after a while, you, know, you begin to think, you know, maybe my religion just doesn't work. Maybe it's not true. Maybe, maybe the Macedonian vision was, a, was a, a dream. Maybe on the road to Damascus, I was just having you know, detached retina problems. You know, I really didn't see a, you know, a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe I was hearing voices. After all, nobody else understood what those voices were. I, I'm the only one who understood what they were. They were. Maybe I was delusional. You know, you're tempted to think all kinds of things when, when you're under attack and when you've been really disappointed, and some of you have been. Uh, you know, if you've walked with Christ or someone's asked you what you believe, you've faced those moments when you've been uh, made to be ashamed, if, as it were, for what you believe. And here we're learning something very important about the Apostle Paul and about a disciple of Jesus Christ. Don't let setbacks become roadblocks. Let them become platforms that launch you right on to the next thing. And so we're going to see in verse 1 that we must stay future-focused. It says here that after this, Paul left Athens. It doesn't say he left Athens and went to the coast, put his feet up, went to the beach, hung around for a while, drank a few brews, got himself back together. No. It says he went right from Athens, and he went right straight back into the fire, went to Corinth. Just an amazing thing. Um, and we've seen already what a, what a challenge uh, Corinth would have been. The word uh, to fornicate or to have uh, uh, extramarital sex, uh, the word for it in the uh, Mediterranean world was to Corinthianize. I mean, that, that's how well known, how notorious Corinth was for their sexual immorality. Uh, it was just called all across the Roman Empire to Corinthianize. And that's exactly where Paul goes. So, gentlemen, look, if if you're facing something difficult at work or in your neighborhood or in the community in some way and you receive opposition, uh, one thing you're going to learn is you, you do the best you can with that. You, you find your Dionysus and your Damaris. You lead them to Christ. And if that's all you can do, then you go right on to the next thing. You just keep moving. And don't expect that in this broken world, this sin, uh, sinful world, this sinful and adulterous generation, that people are just going to, clamor for the gospel. Now, sometimes they do. It's a rare moment. But most of the time they don't. And you have to realize that the deepest evidence of this world's brokenness is the resistance to receive the greatest gift that any human being could ever receive. How broken does a person have to be? Not to be able to receive eternal life. What's in their best interest? So you can see the, the self-destructive nature of sin. So don't be shocked by it, and don't be daunted by it, and don't be slowed down by it. And, of course, I'm sure that on, on the way to Corinth, Paul was licking his wounds, and he was maybe going through some of the speeches he made and some of the evangelistic encounters that he had, and I'm sure he was learning from his mistakes. I'm sure he was, he was going through those arguments and what the other person said and what he said, and he was trying to get things straight in his own mind so that he'd be better for the next time forward. It wasn't as though he ignored his pain or that he didn't learn lessons from his mistakes. Of course he was doing all of that. You can see it in his ministry as he grows. But he goes right on to the next thing. He's got a vision. He was given a vision, the Macedonian vision, to come over to Europe and help out the lost people there and to evangelize God's people. And he did that and he continued to move on that vision. So yes indeed, you, you need time to process what's, you know, some of your bad encounters.
but you, you get right on to fulfilling the vision and just keep moving forward. You lean into the future. You're not ignoring the past, but you're not going to be tied down by the past. You're not ignoring your failures, but you're not tied down by them. Now, you know this in business as well. That if you're in business any time at all, you're going to have multiple failures. Uh, one of you said to me one time, you know, I went, went bankrupt way too early in my business life. You know, it been, been easier if I'd had a little bit of, you know. And then, then I had another of you say, boy, it's tough when you go bankrupt late in your business life. You, know, you don't have as much time to make it up. But if you're in business, they're, they're, I mean, the likelihood of somewhere along the line having something akin to bankruptcy is, is not rare at all. And so what are you going to do? Just fold up your cards and go home? No, you, you get the next vision. And any entrepreneur, entrepreneur knows this. Well, if you're in evangelism and missions, you're in entrepreneurial work, and you just can't let the business failures keep you from business. And we all know that you know, the, the essence of American business is small businesses. And what percentage of small businesses fail? I mean, it's just, you know, what is it, 70 or 80%? It's some, something way up there, maybe higher. So when you're in evangelism work, when you're in the ministry of the gospel work, you don't expect to have 100% success. If you are, you're just preaching to the choir. I mean, come on, we got to get out there where the, where the real trials are, face them, and keep leaning into the future and never forget the vision. So Paul stayed future-focused no matter what was ailing him in the present or what disappointed him in the past. Now, look at verses 2 and 3. You find something else very important about moving through setbacks, and that is got to find friends. Find friends. Now, this is really interesting. Uh, we can see all kinds of things at play here in Paul finding friends. First of all, notice, wherever there's going to be a friend, he's going to find them. Paul is willing to go out on his own when he has to. And it's just amazing to me, standing there in Corinth, thinking about a man coming all the way from Athens by himself to face that great city. Just overwhelms me with gratitude for what he did. Uh, you and I largely are Christians because Paul, uh, and of course underneath God's sovereignty, under God's sovereignty, Paul was willing to go from city to city to be sure we got the gospel. It's just an amazing thing. So I'm grateful for that. But notice that he doesn't do that unnecessarily. Whenever he can find friends, whenever he has associates, he's always pulling them in. And you notice he's almost always traveling with friends. This is one of the rare instances when Paul's traveling by himself. He, look at Billy Graham. He almost never travels by himself. And so we always must be yoked up and be looking for those partners wherever we can find them. And Paul didn't ask Aquila and Priscilla if they were Methodists or Baptists or Episcopalians. You know, do they love the Lord? Were they followers of Christ? It didn't matter whether they were evangelized in Rome, which probably was the case, or somewhere else, you know, some other, some other culture or some other uh, tradition. No, they were Christ's people. Now, there are many ways in which we can attribute these three people coming together. One is that whenever Paul goes to a city, he's going to find them. I mean, all you have to do is go to the synagogue and say, has anybody here ever been preaching about a man named Jesus being the Messiah? Oh, yeah, there's a crazy man down the street that does that. Okay. So Paul goes, you know, that's all you have to do. Go find Priscilla and Aquila. They're going to be known in the synagogue as those crazy uh, messianic Jesus people. Uh, the other way is, notice, Paul's a tent maker. And Priscilla and Aquila are tent makers. Paul goes to Corinth, and in order to survive, he's going to have to eat. In order to eat, he's either going to have to beg or work. 
And Paul always chose work. And so Paul goes, and he's just simply working. He's just finding a job. He's just flipping hamburgers, man. He's just doing whatever he can to survive. So he goes to the local tent-making shop. And lo and behold, the only believers in town. Now, this is where God comes in. Is this not amazing? Uh, Aquila was from Pontus, which is on the south side of the Black Sea, but somehow he gets over to Italy. And he and Priscilla are wonderful business people. They're tent makers, and they have a business in Rome. Well, they get kicked out of Rome. You think God may be in charge of this? They get kicked out of Rome under the Caesar Claudius in 49 AD. Claudius insisted that all the, uh, all the Jews clear out of town because they were causing trouble. And uh, the reason they were causing trouble was over the controversy of this man, Christus, which would be Christos, Christ. There was a Christian controversy in Rome causing the synagogues to be stirred up. Claudius had enough of it, and he expelled the Jews. Well, what do you know? So well, these Christians, Priscilla and Aquila, take their tent-making business to Corinth, and they set up a shop there. So they've got a shop in Rome. Now they've got a shop in Corinth, and we're going to find out before it's all over. They get a shop in Ephesus, and there's only one reason. It's, well, two reasons. The providence of God and the mission of God. In Corinth, it was God's providence that sent them there. In Ephesus, it's going to be because they kept their tent-making business, established a shop in Ephesus so that they could help plant the church in Ephesus. So they were using their business, using their talents, using their mobility, using their entrepreneurial skills in order to advance the kingdom. Some of you are doing that, too, in a very conscious way. But you need to be thinking about this. When you establish a business somewhere, uh, if, if you're growing your business, and it's a business you own, like Aquila and Priscilla did, you need to be thinking about cities that need help with their churches. Why don't you tie your business along, together with your missional work? Uh, that's exactly what they were doing. So you can see it was a result of Aquila and Priscilla's intentionality. It was a result of Paul's intentionality. And it was a result of God's intentionality, all working together. Notice that Paul was very willing to work with his hands. And he did this especially in Corinth for this reason. It's because the Corinthians, uh, during Paul's lifetime, were a very immature Christian people. Now, we're going to see that people start coming to Christ. Remember, they live in a wild city. And that wildness doesn't get knocked out of them right away. You can see that in 1 Corinthians. It's one of the craziest letters where Paul is addressing some things that we would consider rather fundamental. And Paul is dealing with the wildness in that church for a long time. Paul did not receive material help from them because they would have confused his motives. They would have thought that he was just like the great slick philosophical teachers who would come to town, give a few fancy speeches and pass the hat and collect money from the people. Paul did not want the Corinthians to think that he was one of those and in their immaturity they would have suspected his motives. Paul only received material help from churches that were mature enough to be excited about the mission of Christ and to know that Paul's motives were right and that he could be trusted. So therefore, the Macedonians, who became a very mature church, they materially assisted the Apostle Paul on a number of occasions, and he felt free to receive their gifts. But when he went evangelizing a church planting in an immature area, he went to tent making. And gentlemen, we must always be open to this. 
Tent-making missions has become very popular in the past 30 years. And so all over the world, we have people who go in as computer technicians, who go in as professors, who go in as business people, who go in as medical personnel, and they'll go using their craft, but their ultimate agenda is to expand the kingdom of God. And we must do that in areas where it's, it's not open for missionaries, where the only way we get in is through our skills. And we must be thoughtful and strategic about this and willing to, to work both sides of the street. You see the perfect example here with the Apostle Paul. He finds friends and he makes a living and he yokes himself in ways uh, that are appropriate to the culture. Now, see, look in verses 4 through 5 and you see this. Stick to the fundamentals. Stick to the fundamentals. When you're leaning into the future, you're yoking up with other people who are gospel-oriented, stick to the fundamentals. Number one, go to the church first. We are in the church first. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now notice, Paul had been in many synagogues by now. He had led a number of Jews to faith in Jesus Christ. And he had also gotten himself in massive trouble already. I want us to see why it is that Paul keeps going into the synagogue. Turn in the next book in your Bible in Romans to chapter 9. And here we see something of the apostle's heart for his own people. He says in Romans 9 verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. Wow. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul goes into what we would today call the churches, uh, the people of God who had been taught for generations but who were not converted, who had not received Christ as Savior. And he has a deep longing for them. He loves them. Even when they abuse him, he loves them. And he desires so much that they would know Christ. He makes this statement that's impossible for me to understand that he would even be willing to be accursed and cut off. For their sakes. That's how much he loved them. That's the reason he kept going to the synagogue. Because God had put it upon his heart that we start with our own people. With God's own people. The people that may not be converted, but they're uh, members, if you will. The outward members of the visible church. And so in every one of our churches, the place we start is in our Sunday school class. Let's be sure everyone there knows Christ. Let's start with our churches. Let's start with the people that are coming to the other churches. And then we go from there. That's the way Paul always did it. And then notice in verse 5, uh, number 2 here, we stick to the fundamentals as circumstances allow. Notice this statement. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. Now what that means is this. Before Silas and Timothy got there, Paul would work part of the day to earn his food and board, uh, I mean his room and board, and then he would preach part of the day or part of the week. When Silas and Timothy got there, they came with gifts from Macedonia. So what did Paul do? He said, Priscilla and Aquila, 
you have a few less tents to sell because I'm going to be working full-time in the synagogue. So when Paul had his opportunity to work off tithes and offerings in order to preach the gospel, he did. So notice Paul could go either way. He didn't complain about either one. If he had to work, either because he needed the income or because the local people wouldn't understand it if he lived off uh, gifts from them, uh, then he freely worked. But then on the other hand, when he got opportunity to devote full-time into ministry work, he did it. Same with you guys who are in business and in the professions. You need to stick with your work. God has gifted you. He's given you a vision for your work. You need to do your work excellently. You need to give gifts off that work so that the gospel can be advanced uh, everywhere. As you grow in your businesses and time uh, allows you to get engaged more uh, physically, more uh, personally in ministries, if he's gifted you to do so, you will find opportunities to do it. I've been watching you, and increasingly, I find that you're using your income and your professional backgrounds as platforms to advance the gospel as that vision increasingly takes over your mind. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. Thirdly, notice in verse 5 what he talks about when he gets time. He talks about Christ, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Here we go again. Same message. It's about Jesus Christ. It's not about uh, ultimately the Bible. Uh, it's not ultimately about living an ethical life. It's not ultimately about doing certain things. It's ultimately about receiving Jesus Christ as Lord, receiving him as the promised Messiah in the Old Testament when he's preaching to Jews. He sticks to his knitting. Now, leave your finger there and turn over to 1 Corinthians, and let's see how Paul describes it there, his experience. He, he, Paul, later on, writing the Corinthians, he recounts his experience in coming to Corinth. Look at 1 Corinthians 2. This will be page 2194, 2194. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He said, I didn't come to you as a great orator, nor did I come to you as a great philosopher. I didn't use the philosophical categories that the Stoics and the Epicureans used, nor did I use the oratory of some of the great super apostles that they later uh, would uh, highly tout. He said, I came to you with very plain speech, and I came to you with very direct propositions. But most importantly, verse 2, uh, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul is saying, I honed in on the Messiah, who was Jesus of Nazareth, and I honed in on what he did on the cross to pay for our sins, to triumph over the evil powers of this world. I focused on Jesus Christ crucified, and of course that would imply, as we know from 1 Corinthians 15 a little later, also his resurrection and even his ascension. He focused right on Christ. Gentlemen, this is the heart of the gospel. You've got to focus on Christ. In order for Christ to be understood properly, you have to explain context. What's the problem that Jesus came to, to solve? And that problem is largely our sin and the brokenness of this world. All the brokenness, all the problems, especially the problems right here in our heart, he came to solve those, and the, the cross solved it. 
So you have to define the problem, and then you have to show Jesus Christ crucified. Well, Paul, that's exactly what he did. He also showed for the Jews' sake that the book they cherished, the Old Testament, was pointing right to this Christ. And this Old Testament described both the, pro both the problem and the solution, and Christ was the one promised in the Old Testament. So he focused on Christ. Keep reading here, verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. What is that all about? Weakness, fear, and much trembling. Well, we've already said. Paul comes to Corinth all by himself. He's got 450,000 people, or let's say 400, uh, 449,000 uh, uh, 998 people who don't know anything about Christ have no paradigm in their minds to understand this Messiah, Jesus. And they like the way they live. They like the money they ma they're making. They like the sex they're having. They like everything about what they're doing. And Paul comes in with this alien message. Of course, he came to them with fear and trembling. It was very daunting. And Paul here admits it, that his body was revolting against him. You, know, you can know that something's right and something's good and something's necessary. Some of you have been in warfare. And you know if you're in a just war and you have to fight, you're going to fight. And you know that you might die. And you take that, that risk. And you're saying, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to go. We're going to charge. We're going to fight this battle. And some of you know what I'm talking about. And in your mind, you've decided. There's courage. There's mental courage. But your body is saying, I ain't going where we're going. Your body starts to revolt on you because you've got a thing called nerves and you've got a body and sometimes the body just won't cooperate and you have to bring that body along. And Paul got his head and his heart out ahead of his body and told his body to come along because the body was shaking with fear. If you're in the ministry of Christ and you're, you're leaning into the future, you're leaning into the vision, you're going to find that sometimes your body just doesn't want to go with you. Uh, there's go there are going to be tremblings and there are going to be fearful times. Going to, there's going to be weakness when you know that these 450,000 people are too much for you. There's no possible way. You can either convince them or perhaps even survive. And you know there's no way, humanly speaking, you're going to be seen as anything other than an idiot. So you come in weakness. You know that you're weak. Look at this confession here. And my speech, verse 4, and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. It was not in conventional philosophical language, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So he says, I didn't try to overwhelm you with eloquence. Didn't try to overwhelm you with my words. I simply trusted in the spirit of God. It was spiritual power that came upon you. When I preached this simple message of Jesus Christ crucified, it was God himself who came down from heaven and provided the power that overwhelmed you. I didn't overwhelm you. I'm not an overwhelming person. We're told of Paul, uh, traditionally, he was a bald man. with uh, He was bow-legged. He was short. <clears throat> he was not particularly attractive. And he admits all this in 2 Corinthians. He says, I'm not like those great orators. I didn't come to you with elo eloquence nor elegance. So Paul said the power that you experienced was spiritual power. And gentlemen, uh, maybe you are good looking. Maybe you are uh, in good shape. Maybe you are eloquent. But if you're depending upon that to lead someone to Christ, you're depending upon entirely the wrong thing. Number one, it doesn't work. 
they may be impressed with you, but they won't be impressed with your Savior. You know, one time uh, someone at um, Metropolitan Church in London where Charles Haddon Spurgeon was preaching brought his friend to go to church with him. And after they left church and Spurgeon had preached one of his great sermons again, the member of Metropolitan Tabernacle said to his friend, well, what did you think of my preacher? And the man said, well, I don't know. I don't know about your preacher, but I'll tell you what, I sure was impressed with the Christ he was preaching. Now, that's what you want. If you want to go and be impressive to someone, they won't be impressed with Christ. If they're going to be impressed with Christ, actually, you're almost irrelevant. You're just the, you're just the channel through which blessing comes. So Paul was very aware of this. He, that's the reason he says in 2 Corinthians, that is why, brothers, that I boasted in my weakness. This is contrary to everything in the first century uh, ancient world. You never boasted in your weakness. Unheard of. There's no precedent for that anywhere in ancient history. Paul says, I boast in my weakness. Why? Because when I am weak... He is strong. Now look here, look here at this verse in 1 Corinthians 2. He says that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So if I am bragging about Jesus Christ, which means I must then brag about my own weakness and incapacity, then you're going to put your faith not in my words or my eloquence or my presentation. You're going to put your faith in the living God. Because I've already told you, I, I'm not trustworthy. You can't put your faith in me. I can't save you. I've told you about him. You know, when John the Baptist was preaching about Jesus, he said to the crowds, I must decrease, he must increase. And that's exactly what happens if you're, if you're sharing Christ. It's going to be humiliating. It is, by its very nature, humiliating to evangelize. Because to evangelize, you... you are admitting and actually boasting in your own inability that comes through in the gospel itself, which says, I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. I'm a broken man who needs to be empowered. But it's also because I'm, I'm a fool who believes this stuff. I believe these miracles. That makes me foolish in the eyes of the world. So in every way, I become weak when I display his strength. Now, that's what Paul is doing in Corinth. It was concerning Christ he stuck to the fundamentals. He didn't try to impress these people and say, you know what, these philosophers who've been teaching you and your children, they're not the only smart people. There are a lot of smart Christians too. Let me display this for you. And then he shows how because he's a Christian, he's so smart. Don't you want to be a Christian too? And you can be smart too. You see how confusing that is? Now that people think, well, I need to be like Paul. No, Paul comes in weakness. I'm not eloquent. I'm not good looking. I don't have the same skills these other men have. Here's what I have. Jesus Christ crucified for me. And that's what you need too because you ain't so good looking yourself. <laughs> All right? So we come in weakness and then men who will acknowledge their own weakness find a common Savior. And we ought to appeal to weakness because actually that's what we all are. There's not a man here who can save himself. There's not a man anywhere in the universe who can save himself. We're all weak. So if we don't preach in weakness, if we don't evangelize in weakness then we're not saving real men because they're weak. So it was concerning Christ. He stuck to the fundamentals wherever he went. doesn't matter how smart, how powerful they were. Now, one more thing in 1 Corinthians. I'm sorry I told you to turn back. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, I want you to look with me in chapter 1. This is page 2,193. You will notice something about 
the typical person who is attracted to this gospel. And Paul describes it here in verse 26, 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Look at that. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So Paul is saying to them, uh, the converts here in Corinth, not many of them had a very wealthy background. Not many of them were of noble birth. Not many of them were trained in the universities. So if you are daunted by the fact that money typically causes the conversion rate to go down, or if you're daunted by the fact that graduate degrees from universities typically cause the conversion rates to go down, just go right back to the first century. That's that's what we were, we've always said this. There's nothing wrong with money, and there's nothing wrong with education. I believe in both of them, and I enjoy both of them. But there's a sense in which if you have either one of them, and the more of it you have, the more prideful you become. And the more you begin to look at your own strength and think that's adequate. So the more money you have, the more tempted you are to think, you know, you're pretty strong. You've got a lot of power. And the more intellectual and academic training that you have, you begin to think, you know what? I'm not a dumb guy. I, I can figure this out by myself. And so the, the conversion rates tend to go down. So listen to me, wealthy and educated people. Be very careful. Be very careful that you're sure you've received Jesus Christ in all of your weakness and all of your foolishness. And be sure that as you continue to be discipled in him, you continue to see yourself as weak and needy, both physically and intellectually. Now, let's go to verses 6 through 8, and here we learn, go with the flow. What do I mean here? Well, look at the Apostle Paul. He gets scorned, opposed, and reviled in verse 6. Uh, and what does he do? He says, y'all stop that. You're not being fair. No, he just said, look, I've given you every opportunity. Now you're becoming abusive. So when Paul had sharp questions asked him, sharp challenges, he would give answers. Paul would never... Never shame someone for a difficult question. All questions are legitimate. And I encourage you, ask your questions. And it doesn't matter how sharp or aggressive those questions are. But notice with the apostle, when the hearers became abusive, then he would move on. And gentlemen, it's exactly what you must do. And sometimes I've noticed men will obsess on either a brother or a parent or a child, or a workmate, or a childhood friend, somebody that's just got to come to Jesus. And they just keep obsessing about that week after week after week while about 400 people walk right past them who don't know Jesus Christ. And they've missed all those 400 opportunities because they're obsessed. Paul didn't obsess on anything except Jesus Christ. And he took every opportunity that he had. And he would work with you as long as you're asking questions and you want answers. But when you become abusive, then he shakes his garments out, we should say, I'm not responsible for you anymore. You can face God uh, yourself. I'm not going to be there when the fire comes. You know, you're going to have to face him. The blood is on your head. I don't, 
your blood is not on my hands. I've preached to you the gospel. So Paul discharged his duty. He took pleasure in that and contentment in that. And even with sadness, he would move on and keep leaning into the future. Gentlemen, lean into the future. If your children don't want the gospel, pray for them every day. Evangelize when you get an opportunity. Ask questions, but don't let them hold you back from evangelizing the rest of the world. Lean into the future. Warn the scorners. He warned them. I've had Mormons come to my house. I'll listen to them, interact with them. And when they become unreasonable, I'll say, look, gentlemen, here's the deal. You're going to face the judgment of God, and you are sinners, and you're going to be destroyed if you don't receive Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel. So before they get out of my house, they're going to get a warning. It's the last word of love I can give them is the final warning. That's what Paul gives here. Warn the scorners. Secondly, verses 7 through 8, go with the flow by evangelizing the curious. So, okay, you can't do it in church. Well, go over to the, the, the pagan book study, you know, whatever. So he goes uh, uh, to the, the Gentiles. He went to a house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Now, in this case, he was a God-fearer, but he was a Gentile. And Paul goes there, and guess what? The ruler of the synagogue actually gets converted. We don't know if he got converted when they were over in the house of Titius Justice or if he got converted previously. But the ruler of the synagogue gets converted. That's no small deal. And then many other Corinthians, verse 8, hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Hallelujah! So Paul goes to Athens. He has real difficulty there. He goes to Corinth in weakness and in fear, and his body was trembling and revolting, but Paul preaches Christ, and look at this, out of his weakness, many people are raised up to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's look secondly at verses 9 through 18. We're going to have to move a little faster. In 9 through 18, we want to note this. We've got to remember who's in charge. Remember who's in charge. Paul remembered this before he went, but he needed to keep remembering it. Because the hostility had arisen, the opposition was now strong, even though God was leading people to Christ, and Paul needs a word of encouragement. And guess what? Verse 9 through 11, God encourages us. God speaks to us. He's spoken to us in His Word, and He will give us adequate strength. And when you think the trial is too big for yourself, then you're just coming to your senses. Of course it's too big for you. Of course you can't solve it. And what made you think you could? And when you get exhausted thinking how you're going to solve this particular problem, good, now we're ready to do business with Jesus. You finally gave up on yourself. Great. And so often happens with men, especially, I notice, we'll try everything before we pray. You know, prayer is the last option. And as we get older, hopefully what's happening to us is at least prayer moves its way up the list. Until it comes to the first thing that we do, because we've been through this long, uh, often enough to know there's no way I can solve this. I'm just going to take it to the Lord. Look what happens when you go to the Lord. Paul has a vision one night. In verse 9, God says to him, don't be afraid. Oh, right, Lord, I won't be afraid. <laughs> you know, there are two ways to do this. Uh, the psalmist says, I will trust in the Lord and not be afraid. Or you can say, when I'm afraid, I'll trust in the Lord. Now, I prefer number one, but if you've got to use number two, that's fine. But he says here, do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. Brothers, go on speaking. Do not be silent. Don't let the proud 
and the arrogant and the wealthy and the, the convinced pagans keep you from speaking the truth. Yes, I'm an idiot. I know that. Yes, I'm a fool. Yes, I'm stupid. Have you heard about Jesus who died on the cross to save sinners? And that, that's the way you do it. Of course, you just don't let them stop you. Uh, all right? Secondly, notice he, he command, his commands guide us, but notice his promise comforts us. He says, I want you to go do this. I'm commanding you to do this, but look, I am with you in this. I am with you. And that's the last thing Jesus said to his disciples when he, when he ascended into heaven. He says, Flo, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the earth. I'm with you. And here in this vision, Paul gets it again. Don't think you're by yourself. You go into Corinth, 450,000 people, and it's just one little apostle, one little Jewish man from Tarsus all by himself. You ain't by yourself. You have the living God accompanying you going into Corinth. That's what Paul had to understand. I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. So Paul, it looks very vicious here. It looks like a very angry environment. It looks like there's no hope. I'm telling you what, I'm going to guard and protect you. And then look at this deepest secret in verse 10b. For I have many in this city who are my people. His election inspires us. Now some say, you know, I, I don't know how I can believe in this election routine because uh, it seems to me to undermine evangelism. <laughs> Folks, that's not the way Paul thought. Paul was thinking, man, I'm grateful for this election thing because that's the only reason I'm in this evangelism business. Because if it isn't for election, I may as well quit. Look at this city. Who in the world is going to convince any of these people? The Jews think they've already got it all together. They don't need Jesus. The Gentiles, they love their sex and their intellectual life and their money and everything else. They're too proud for this. What hope is there? And God says, I happen to be uh, uh, the deity who elects my people, and i got a bunch of them in Corinth, so don't stop. And gentlemen, until Jesus comes back, here's the message. i got a bunch of them in this world. Don't be quiet. You go get them. They're there. If they weren't there, I've already come back. The only reason he hasn't come back is because they're still in the city. So he says, you keep the work going because they're here until I come back. That's the only thing that's keeping him from coming back is because he is saving his people. And when all of his people are saved, he's coming back. So if he doesn't come back, you know they're safe, the unsaved people here who are his elect. You don't know who they are. You just know they're in there tucked in there somewhere. So go get them through all the mess and all the anger and all the opposition. Now look at verse 12 through 18 lastly. And notice that not only does God encourage us, but God protects us. And first of all, we see in verses 12 and 13, we need it. These people hauled Paul into the, the tribunal in verse uh, 13 there. And the word tribunal is, is, uh, comes from the Greek word bema. And the bema was a little platform. In fact, it's been, uh, it's been excavated. It's there. You can see it. The bema right outside the proconsul's house. And there's where people would stand in the Bema and be tried. And Paul was put on trial. And you too will be put on trial from time to time. You will. People will talk about you. They'll say, you know that little narrow-minded fundamentalist down the hallway? Well, he sure is hard to deal with. If you're not ready for that, then you're not ready to, to be in the business of Jesus because you're going to get it. And we need help because we cannot defend ourselves. And notice what they said about him. This man is persuading people to worship God. Look at this. Contrary to the law. Contrary to what law? Well, they wanted Gallio to think that he was uh, preaching contrary to the Roman law. Now, you have to remember, in Roman law, 
Judaism was called an authorized religion. What the Jews are saying is, this man is not really Jewish. So he's not authorized. And he's proclaiming a religion that undermines the gods of Rome and the emperor himself. In other words, he's preaching something contrary to law. Now we know from Romans 13, the best thing you could ever have in your nation are law-abiding Christian citizens. They're taught to submit to the magistrate. They're taught not to slander the President of the United States. They're taught that even if you don't vote for him, you respect him because of his office. You submit to his authority. Whether it's a mayor or a governor or a city council, you don't have to agree with them, but you must show them respect and submission. They're taught that. So the best thing you could have in your nation would be law-abiding Christians. But look at the slander here. They're saying, he's contrary to law. It's a complete lie. And that's what happens to you. Expect it. You'll get lies. You're going to need protection because the opposition against you is not going to be rational, it's not going to be fair, and it's not going to be legal. It's going to be the contrary of all of those. And there's not anything you can do about it if you're one out of 450,000. So what are you going to do? Trust in the Lord. Because verses 14 through 18, not only do we need protection, but he does it. He protects us. Now notice how he does it in verses 14 through 16. He uses third parties. He uses Gallio himself. Now we know from history, uh, extra biblical history, that Gallio is actually the younger brother of the philosopher Seneca, the Stoic philosopher Seneca. In Seneca's writings, he actually brags about his brother, whom he says is very tolerant and kind. So God is going to use an unbelieving Roman proconsul who happens to have some principles to bring justice. He uses the pagan against the church people who are railing against the evangelist. <laughs> hey, look, I know it doesn't make sense. It doesn't have to. God's in charge. And God is the one who's using whatever he wants to to protect his people. If he said, you're not going to be harmed, I'm going to protect you, you can trust him, even through unexpected means. Notice in verse 17, he also turns the tables. They all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him. Now, I'm a, I don't know the answer to this, and I, haven't, I, I read commentators who have different views on it. I'm not sure who's beating up Sosthenes. I'm not sure if Sosthenes, uh, who obviously succeeded Crispus as the uh, ruler of the synagogue. I'm not sure if Sosthenes here is converted or unconverted. If he's unconverted, it's the uh, Gentiles uh, who beat him up. If he's converted, it's the Jews who are beating him up. I don't know who's beating him up, but that poor guy's getting whipped, I'm telling you what. And, we show, and he shows up again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, when Paul writes the Corinthians, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and Sosthenes. So Sosthenes eventually gets converted. Maybe the getting beat up helped him. I don't know what. But God completely turns the tables around, and the anger is redirected in another direction. Then lastly, notice in verse 18. He sends us on. Here we go again. Paul came from Athens uh, after a disappointing encounter there. He goes to Corinth and stays for a year and a half because after God made these promises to him, promised his presence with him, Paul stayed ministered for a year and a half and planted a church. And then all chaos breaks out again. What does Paul do? Leans into the future. And now he takes Aquila and Priscilla with him 
not to get a tent-making business started in Ephesus, which actually happens. That's not the reason Aquila and Priscilla are going. They're going with Paul to accompany him because Paul has told the Ephesians, I'm going to come by and see you. He does, and we'll read more about Ephesians next week. But look, Paul just keeps going. He just keeps going. It's not because he believes he's strong, smart, and good-looking. He keeps going because God says, go, and God says, I'll be with you. It's exactly what it says to you when you walk out the door today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great mission upon which you've sent each one of us, this great apostolic mission. Help us with the things that to us may seem so small, mentoring a younger man, rearing our children, encouraging our grandchildren, leading the Bible study, teaching Sunday school, evangelizing our neighbor. Help us to do those things and to do them faithfully, knowing that you are with us. You will protect us and you will keep sending us on. We pray in Jesus' name.